The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, my name is Joni Siegel, and this is The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. I'll be your host for this podcast. Today is episode number 193. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, holistic, drug-free, evidence-based, step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 866-231-5924. Today, we have a very interesting interview with a woman named Emily O'Brien. Emily O'Brien is an entrepreneur and the founder of Comeback Snacks, a specialty popcorn company that challenges the status quo. After being sentenced to a four-year jail term stemming from her battle with addiction, Emily set out on the mission to get clean, transform herself, and make her time in jail as meaningful as possible. Having fostered an entrepreneurial career before her sentence, Emily birthed the idea for Comeback Snacks, formerly Cons and Kernels, a popcorn brand that uses high-quality, health-conscious ingredients to create unique flavors inspired by the ones she found and curated in prison. Without further ado, let's talk to Emily O'Brien. Emily O'Brien, thank you for being on the podcast today and sharing your story. Thank you so much. I'm so, so thrilled to be here. Awesome. Your story is is exciting, so I can't wait to get to the, the good stuff. But let's start out with how did you get started on drugs? How did you get started on the road to addiction? Um, It started out of um, being an introvert, being very quiet as a kid, Um you know, I was actually bullied a lot as an elementary school student. And so I became, I kind of stayed home a lot. Um, I was put in competitive sport, but even then I was still kind of bullied out competitive sport. And so I went, I would just go to the library. Right. And when I got to high school, I kind of started morphing into like someone that people would consider pretty. Um, because in my high school, I was like a, a tomboy or in elementary school, I was like a tomboy. And so I get to high school and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how to talk to anyone. And I was really nervous. And so uh, a lot of people in high school were, you know, drinking cold 45s and fireball whiskey. And it didn't, it wasn't an, an addiction then. It was just like, I just needed to figure out how to talk, how to be social. And so throughout high school, um, I used this as my way to talk to people. I don't think I really learned how to talk to people at parties sober, right? So um Got to high, got through high school. I got graduated with honors, you know, and, and went to university, where binge drinking was also part of the culture. But, um, you know, I, I always got good grades, and I didn't really see it as as an issue. But uh, it definitely started it started in high school, and yeah, there there was waves of it. I would say for sure. And binge drinking, did you do that a fair amount in college? Yeah, yeah, I would say like three three days a week. Probably because, you know, just go, everyone would just always be going out and you'd have like four or five classes that you'd be doing and, you know, that you could also do a lot in your spare time. So, yeah. Right. Where was Mm -hmm. this? What part of, you're, you're from Canada, right? 
Yes. Yeah. I'm like an hour outside Toronto. Okay. So, so where yeah. did you go to college? I went to the University of Guelph, Ontario. Okay. Yeah. So that was about 45 minutes away from my mom's house. Understood. So, and, and I understand, you know, why you would start off with alcohol that way. We've had other people on the podcast and, you know, alcohol makes it easy to talk to people. I mean, it just does. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand that. Did you then um, move from alcohol into other drugs? I experimented in high school, but I didn't like depend on it in high school. Um, as I graduated university and I moved to Toronto, like the drug that was everywhere was was cocaine. And I was at a point in my life where like I couldn't go out and socialize unless it was like with my family without having some other sort of substance because like that, like introvertedness had kind of carried on. And it was something that I just gotten accustomed to like even in my relationships like I was like I don't know how to go on a date sober you know like or at least I can start a date sober but like intimacy for me was something that needed substances right which actually isn't intimacy at all right. so yeah understood so um did you was your family aware at all of what was going on with you yeah like I I definitely ran away a lot in, in high school from my home because I just thought I was so independent and, you know, really I wasn't, but the problem got really bad. Um, actually what it went in my mid twenties and when I had moved to Toronto and then when there was like, um, you know, there was like a fracture in the family, which, which was really difficult. Um, I know I'm not the only one that went through this, like so many things happen in people's families. Um, but it was still really difficult for me. And, you know, I grew up in a very, very loving home. And so when you see things in your family kind of fall apart, it's just, it's, it was very hard for me to deal with. And so I continued to not just drink socially, but I began to cope through that with, with substances as well. And in the meantime, like during all this, I was actually running a business. And so there's a whole other set of like expectations when you're a woman running a business, which is like, you know, you don't want to seem weak and, you know, I would get a lot of business deals by, by going out. And, you know, I was one of the girls that could. And so I saw this as a necessary part of it, which it also wasn't true. Right. What was your business, Emily? What were you doing? Um, my first official business was a social media company. Okay. So, yeah. So I would work with like brands, restaurants, um, independent artists. I would work with events that were happening, charities, and just help them with their online content. And I would just meet people because at this point I was social, right? Like I'd gone from being not social at all to learning how to be, how to be social. Um, so yeah, it's a, uh, I would always be out and then that's how I would meet more people. Um, but it also it came with a very, very heavy price tag. Yep. Cause the whole part of the social scene business, especially business wise is to go out for drinks. Yeah. Which is yeah, fine exactly. if you can stop, but if you can't, then it becomes a different situation. Yeah. And I was at the point where like, there's so there's cocaine there too. And, you know, being an entrepreneur, you can kind of sleep in if you want. Right. So I was like, okay, I can just stay up till three or four. And cause I knew that I would get up at, you know, 11 and still work till I justified it. Right. It's all about justification. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, the, you know, the kind of emotional debt that I had was, was not being paid off and like I I wasn't healing properly or trying to heal properly from all the the things that I was kind of internalizing 
um, because I there's a part of um, like, you know, there's divorce and all these things. Like there's like a shame associated with it if you're a certain age. Like I was told like, oh, like you're, you shouldn't, you know, be sad about this. Like, aren't you old enough? You know, and so like, that was another reason why I didn't talk about it was because like I was like shamed for it. So not like from my individual family, but just from certain people. So right. Yeah. Like, why does it still bother you? I mean, you're grown up now. Go your own life. It shouldn't affect you. Well, yeah, it just might, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, I shouldn't feel guilty for being sad. Right. So no. But I did. I did feel guilty. And so that's when I just hit it more. But I, you know, it, it definitely started accumulating the, the toxicness, like the actual toxicness of, of the drug in inside my body and the toxicness of not healing was actually also doing lots of damage. Right. So, right. Yeah. so how did it progress from there? You've got a business, you're drinking, you're doing cocaine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then I, I really wanted to stop I really wanted to get sober and I wanted to like I was just in all these like casual relationships that had no meaning and you know it was when the day like the tinder all those dating apps came out and I was like no one really meant anything to me and so I finally like I got to a point where I was just tired and I met someone actually through my work who you know I thought wanted me to get sober who I thought wanted to like have my best interests in mind because he wasn't like people that I'd met prior to that. Um, you know, he wasn't all about just like trying to sexualize me all the time. And that like actually made me feel like I was worth something more. So uh, we actually developed like a, a pretty good friendship and then which turned turned into like a romantic one, but not really a sexual one, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so when we became closer and we, we actually did business together, um, weird things started to happen. Um, it's like his check started bouncing and he started buying me all these presents that I didn't want. And I was just on the verge of, you know, jump, like ending it with him. And I was going to say, how does that work? His checks are bouncing, but he's giving you gifts. I okay. know. <laughs> he's trying to be like, Oh, like I'll pay, I'll pay you back or not. I'll pay you back. I'm like, just to try to like make me forget that he like owed me money. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, but like this Michael Kors watch or whatever, crappy gift you're going to get me isn't going to pay my bills like it's not going to pay my rent like this is why I started a business so that I could be paid for services rendered not in like trinkets so, right so he's like okay you know what I'm like really sorry about this um how about this how about like we just go on a trip and you know we can get away from everything that's going on he's like let's put on the credit card and you know because uh, it's like one of like uh, I'm sorry for putting you through all this all this bs basically and I said okay and so he like immediately books these tickets and three days later, we're going to some a place called St. Lucia and I don't know, we can, we can move forward from there or we can, I can kind of open up the floor to more questions. Well, no, go ahead. Keep going. I did read about what happened, but keep going. Yeah. So we get down there and the first three days are like really fine. They're fun. And the third day comes along and you know at this point he's actually encouraging me to drink and I'm like hey this is kind of weird like he's like he's like oh do you want to get some drugs and I'm like well weird but okay you know like I was like sure we're on vacation it's fun you know couple things on a vacation and then the third day comes around and I normally go down to the pool at that time and he's like oh well you're actually not going anywhere did you really think this is all just fun and games and um he said our friends are picking us up at three in the afternoon and that I was going to help him smuggle drugs back to Canada because he was in a lot of debt. 
Yeah. And he, he just completely changed. Like Seriously? it was so easy for, like, for him oh to, Sorry. it was so easy for him just to, just to change like that. Um, and I was, I was kind of, I thought I did, I thought it was a joke. Like I was like, okay, nice try. And he's like, no, they're picking us up at three. <laughs> and so at that point I'm just like, okay, this is so weird. And I was like, whatever, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. Not going to do this. Like, and I was like, I was angry and I was hurt, but then I was also, I kind of blamed myself because I, I ignored all the red flags, mm. you know, um, and substances help us do that. And so, <laughs> and then, so we go to this um, house and then there's people there. And I guess at this point he's, he, I guess when he booked the tickets, he t- asked me for my passport and he took a picture of my passport and sent it to these people um, in St. Lucia and told them that I was going to be helping him cover a debt that he had incurred somehow. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. So you went to yeah. this house at three o'clock. Yeah. Went to the house at three o'clock and it looked like uh, an old, mo- old motel or like a bed and breakfast kind of thing. And then we go inside and then there's like a couple of people there. there. There's no dogs barking. There's no guns. Like, it's not like as dramatic as you would, you would think, but it's still obviously very dramatic. It's just like a lady there. And she's like, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I'm going to take your measurements now. And so she took my measurements like so that she could make me um, a proper set of like customized spandex underwear that would fit me so that they could fit the appropriate amount of, of narcotics on me. So I was basically getting tailored to, to smuggle drugs. Okay. Yeah. So she, so, okay. So she did that. And then what happened next? How did that progress? So we go, we we go back to the hotel. It's an all inclusive. And at this point I'm like pissed because I was like, I'm not going to be good at this, you know? And I, I was not a good actor. I, I'd never done this in my life. And I think because I'd traveled a lot prior to that, like I I used to live in Indonesia and I, you know, I'd volunteered a lot kind of around the world. He saw this as like, oh, like she'll be a great person that like she'll never get looked at. Right. Like I didn't have a record. Like I didn't, he was, I was basically some open-minded girl that had traveled a lot that he could probably get drunk enough to just do it. Right. And so I, I honestly was freaking out the last the last three days and I, I was freaking out so much that he's like, okay, once we get to Pearson International, so the Toronto airport, um, you can take the drugs off and give them to me, like just put them, I'll give you a backpack. So, you know, supposedly I'm supposed to get off the plane with these drugs, put them in a backpack and give him the backpack. So I'd, I'd kind of calm down a little bit, like a, a little bit, but not a lot. And so I had a little bit, of relief and he didn't like want me on my phone or my computer or anything like that and so I just it was three days of actual terror it, it was not uh it was not comfortable obviously at all because I just wanted to go home and I didn't want to like put my family at risk any more than I already had I didn't want to play hardball this was not my world so I figured I could just do the safest option and that was to get home and again I was blaming myself the whole time because like like I did ignore the red flags and now it was, it was on me. Like, yeah, but now no, you're caught figured... between a rock and a hard spot. I mean, you really, I mean, what's your alternative? Go to the authorities in St. Lucia. I mean, I, I don't know what else you could have done at that point. I don't know anyone else there. And the only person that I knew was him. So he was the only right. person I could really trust. And now that I have two kilograms of someone else's drugs on my body, 
I don't want to want to be the one responsible for sabotaging the loss of those drugs. Right. So, because that, that to me was the most dangerous thing. And so I just wanted to go home. I, I thought like, okay, what's, you know, the worst that can happen is that I get over there and then I get caught and then I can just explain what happened. You know, I didn't, I didn't research the criminal code. I wasn't, I never thought that like four years later I'd be, or not like two and a half years later, I'd be sitting in a prison cell, but that's the way that it went. And we get to Pearson and I, I'm about to go to the bathroom to take these drugs off my, my body. Cause I, I knew for a fact, I could not lie a customs officer in the, like, I could, I could not look a customs officer in the face and lie. I just couldn't. And, but he tells me, he's like, oh, sorry, it's too late now. He doesn't even give me a chance. So my loyalty to him ended there, but I knew that I still had to try my best to complete the task at hand. So he's not going to give you the backpack. You don't get to take them off. It's on you. You have to get through customs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so we go through the first security checkpoint. He's also given me no coaching as to who I was that day. You know, like, was I his girlfriend? Was I his, how long had I known him? How did we meet? I didn't know. Like, what what, was I saying? Some concocted tale? Or was I, I, so basically I just had to make it up. And meanwhile, we're separated at the border. And so (laughs) I'm like, he can't see me and I can't see him. So I'm just, I just made everything up except for the truth about my name and what I did for work. Like, you know, I was like, this is what I do. This is where I traveled last. Um, this is how much I made. Right. Cause I knew that they could look it up if they wanted to. Right. And, and then finally they asked me, um, so Miss O'Brien, we have to ask because we're going to do a body search. Um, do you have drugs on you? And I stared at the floor for 10 seconds and they had to ask me again. So I said, yes. Because I knew that lying to a federal agent, I knew that I was already caught. I knew that my my body was like, you can lie with your words or try to lie with yours, but your body cannot lie through those kinds of situations. And I was also pissed. I was mad at him. So like I had to try to hide my anger for like that last minute bait and switch while still at the same time trying to get, it's, it's just not going to happen. So I was like, I'm telling the truth. And I, I felt like that was just the right thing to do at that point. And so you said, yes, I do have Mm -hmm. drugs on me. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, 
a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Mm-hmm. So what, how did that, what happened then? So we, I get put into a holding cell and I, I'm just trying to explain like what happened, you know, um, again, I was very ignorant to the seriousness of the, of the case, but, and you know, people have, have always been like, how could you not know? But it's like, you don't research that stuff when you don't plan it, right. you know? So it's like, it's like, how am I supposed to memorize like the punishment, like the crime and punishment for this kind of thing? If I wasn't like planning it, <laughs> like, all. so Emily, did they catch um, him or no? Yes, they did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Did you tell them who he was so they could, I mean, did you help in them getting him? He was with me. Um, so he actually had drugs on him too. Right. But, but I wasn't about to go to trial and try to testify against anyone because like, again, I just wanted to plead guilty and I wasn't going to essentially like be a title. Like I, I, like, I just wanted to admit my like involvement and try to for the best case scenario because I didn't want again that's all playing hardball and that's that's not really what you do in in that world and luckily my lawyer found a way to separate our cases so that I didn't I didn't actually have to testify against him at all and I pled guilty so early in the court process um, that it actually helped my sentencing because I, I guess most people like will plead not guilty for so long and yeah, then at the end of the day yeah yeah. Yep. So I admitted my guilt very early. Um, yeah. And you, so your attorney, is this, an, did you like have to go get a criminal attorney once, once this all happened at the airport, once you were arrested, you had to go find a criminal attorney? Yeah. My parents had to, uh, cause I couldn't leave at that right. point, you know, like they had to call my parents. My parents were on vacation. They were three hours away. They had to, you know, pick up and leave and, you know, I'm so grateful for that, that I had, that I have them um, and that they wanted to do that for me. And so I, my father actually found a, a lawyer that, that he knew. And after I was, I had a bail hearing, you know, I was in jail for the whole weekend and it was still all of like a blur, like, because I was, I think it was like, just, I was just in shock. I was like, okay, when can I go home? You know, and again, ignorant, right? But <laughs> I was not experienced. Were you also high, Emily, or no at that point? No, I was sober the day of the flight. Yeah, I was sober since that minute we left. Okay. Which I'm also glad that I was because it helped my body tell the truth without me having to say a word. So. Understood. Okay, so you went to trial and then what, what was the sentence? Um, Well, I didn't actually go to trial. We just, I just did a guilty plea. Oh, okay. So you did like a plea bargain. Yep. Because, you know, if I went to trial, it would have been more expensive, harder on my family. And I I knew that I had to take responsibility in in one way or the next. Sure, maybe I didn't organize this whole debacle, but I knew that I was had struggled with, you know, substances. And I, I put that struggle aside, you know, and I didn't prioritize my healing or what was really going on. 
And so taking ownership and accountability for that was my first step in, in actually healing and being able to move forward instead of back. That's interesting. So that was kind of almost like the first, like we could say your point of no return, getting arrested and realizing that you had to take responsibility. That's, that's a big step. Well done mm -hmm. on you. I mean, well, it didn't, yeah, it wasn't right I mean, away. Like I spent a lot of time being mad at first yeah. for sure. And <laughs> like, and just being like, cause everyone, I, people that I told, like, you know, there was a harm done to me. Right. So I spent a lot of time living in that, like I was harmed phase and not like, Oh, me, what could I have done differently phase. Right? right. So, but, um, yeah, you know, I, I did, uh, it takes a while to come around from these things, but when I just saw how it wasn't helping me and I hate being mad, like I'm just not a mad person and I hate living in a toxic mindset. And so I was like, okay, I need to get out of this somehow. And so I began to kind of think about what I could do with this situation instead of what it was doing to me. That's fascinating. I mean, that's a really good, that's a really good shift of viewpoint. Do you know? Cause I can see how maybe me being in the same position, I might be look at, well, look at what this guy has done to me. But I think the point at which you go, wait a second, let's look at what responsibility I can take. I think that's huge. I mean, I think, I think that's, I think that's huge. Mm -hmm. So what cut was, so what sentence did you get or what was the, yeah, what was the sentence? What was the jail time you were given? I was given four years, a four year sentence. So, cause we have mandatory minimums in Canada. I believe you have them in the, in the United States as well. And you know, when I first, in the beginning, I was like, oh my God, prison, no way. Like I saw it as an inconvenience, right? I was like, I have a career. I have this, I have this. But then I started to see prison as maybe being like a free, not a free rehab. Like I definitely wasn't free because I paid my lawyer 50 grand. So, but you have to look at all these costs and I'm like, okay, if I'm going to pay 50 grand for a lawyer and I'm going to go to prison, this is my rehab fee. You know, this is my time to recover. And so I just started to reframe every single thing that I was going to have to go through from that point on, you know, it's like, okay, so you do have to go to prison. So you won't have a phone. Okay. That's good. No technology. Fine. <laughs> I can create in different ways. I get to, you know, uh, no TV or like, they're not your own TV. At least like you can, you can read. Right. And I've always loved to read. So I got to reignite my favorite hobbies as a kid uh, inside. And sure. There was a lot of things that, that I lost, but the most important things that I had never went anywhere. And I think that's what we fear sometimes when things are taken. It's like, well, we never really, really needed them. We just wanted them. Um, so, yeah. You know, you have a very, you had and you have a very positive outlook. And I think that, I, I think that has done you well. I mean, well done on having such a positive outlook, even going, looking at something like prison, which could, for a lot of people, I think, more cave them in and maybe move toward depression or the dark side, if you will, but you looked at it as something to take, um, as an opportunity, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it took a long time to heal for sure. Like it's not something, and you have to apologize and you have to hold up your end of the bargain. Like my family would have not have kept forgiving me if I didn't hold up, you know, the, the fact that I said I was going to stop. Right. So, um, I had to put in the work and that took years right? And it's some yep. days were not easy. Um, some days were really hard. You know, I found it really hard to even like date anyone because I was like, oh my God, like, I don't even, I, I didn't like trust anyone. And, you know, I didn't, I was getting rid of substances. So I needed to like be in my own body with myself for like 
quite a while. And, and luckily being in prison, you know, you don't get to have sleepovers there. <laughs> right. So, so you got clean and sober in prison, right? Because you had to stop yeah. in prison. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I was like, the day that I go in, I was like, okay, this is it. This is it. And what was it like in prison? What, what, what happened there? Um, so in the Canadian prison system, like I knew that I was going to have to serve a sixth of my sentence as long as I didn't cause any trouble. And then I'd be eligible for day parole. So my time in there, I spent 11 months in there and then I had to go live in a halfway house. So knowing the schedule, I really wanted to see like what, what I could accomplish. And I also wanted to listen to other people's stories and learn a little bit more because once I did, I really realized how much privilege I had compared to a lot of people that are that are incarcerated. You know, I had a family that could afford the $50,000 bail. Um, I had a family that could like leave work and come visit me because the, the visiting hours are only five till seven and the prison's like two hours away, right? Um, they would send or me- Or even like, wanted to come visit you. Do you know what I mean? I mean, exactly. I imagine there are some people in prison, nobody really wants to come and visit them. Yeah, like depending on like your environment, there's like a lot of shame that goes, that goes like, sure there's like, universal shame but i know like like certain women that i talked to they'd be like if my family ever if i told anyone about this like my family would disown me like they pretty much already disowned me so i was blessed in a way that like my my family was willing to let me share this part of my life as long as i did the right thing with it right like they they wanted some some sort of social good to come out of that and then it all it all started to come together in prison so, so what happened there? I mean, what came together there? Tell us about how you progressed from there to the business you have now. Yeah. So when I got into prison, I really noticed how people were actually really kind. Like the, the most people, like the majority of people we meet in there are people that have, you know, gone through tremendous abuse uh, in their lives. Like I was lucky again, I'd, I'd never been sexually abused and a lot of women in prison had and uh, or just subject to horrific, horrific violence um, or poverty. But every single person I met in there had good intentions to get out and they wanted something better. Um, so we we often had like food, part, not parties, but like um, in Canadian federal prison, we get like a, a food budget. So it's not on trays or anything like that. You get $38.01 to spend on like a list of groceries. And so we would have certain spices. And then we also had the canteen list. So people would buy popcorn kernels at the can canteen or chips or whatever. And some people would make muffins and some people would make like, um, like fried chicken and have fried chicken for everyone. So food really brought people together. Like it was a way that people kind of found healing and joy and hope and creativity. And so one day someone um, put like a, we were popping popcorn um, and someone put like lemon pepper and dill as a spice on it. And I, I particularly liked popcorn because I didn't mention this before, but I also struggled a lot with an eating disorder in high school. Oh, and so I okay. kind of, yeah, I, I can't believe I left it out, but like, I, I really struggled. And so I wanted to have a healthier snack where, cause I was in a confined space and I didn't want those like habits to reemerge. And so I was like, Oh, like lemon pepper and dill is actually good on popcorn and it's healthy. And then I began to think, I was like, what kind of like healthy popcorn companies are there? And maybe ones that have, can have a story to it. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to start a popcorn company so that I can actually employ people. Because I also knew that reentry comes with a lot of anxiety because of the uncertainty in the job market or the hopelessness that one feels, whether because of the people that they are surrounded by or by, you know, just 
employers that aren't willing to give them a chance. And right. so I was like, I can, I want to be one of those people. Like I wanted to write a book and then I was like, I want to do more than write a book. I want to, yeah, I wanted to create something that could like have a ripple effect and also help create employment because I want to showcase the skills and the talent uh, of, of the people that were in there with me, because I, at this point, I believed in myself and I wanted others to believe in themselves too. Wow. Wow. What a great goal. What a great kind of mission you set for yourself. So did you hire some of the people that you were in prison with when you got out? Yeah. Like we, I, I started with popcorn kernels and stamps. And so I would write letters to people. Um, I read a lot of books and then I, um, we had like a little website built. Like I, I found a business. My friend is now my business partner. And so he helped build like a temporary website. Like, so we, I could like check emails through the, through the phone. Um, we built our business plan through snail mail and like we did our logo design through snail mail. Um, I, he would send me like food market research. And then when I got out, um, I wasn't actually allowed to hire people that I was in prison with because it's, um, there's one of these conditions when you're on parole that you can't associate with anyone else that's on parole. So the people that I'm now allowed to hire, um, they have to be done their, their parole. So I'm fine with that because I'm only on parole for one more year. And we have like a great team of, you know, there's about six of us now. So it's But you it's can great. still hire people who are, are, they have to be done with their parole? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you can still hire people who have a record, if you will. And that, and oh, that's yeah. what, that was what your intention was. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, or people that just have had addiction in the past, because you know, if you can work in an environment where you can talk about your addiction freely, I think it makes you feel safer and you yep. can actually trust your, the person you're working with. So instead of having a, a relationship where it's like boss and, and worker, it's, it's more like this because we've right. all been there. Right. Like we can talk about the worst times of our life. Like you can call me and say, you're, you're, you're thinking about maybe using or, you know, so, cause there's like that safeness where it's like a lot of workplaces aren't like that. It's like, you know, you can't talk about this. It's like, you can't be weak. It's, yeah. Well, and also so. because there's no reality. I mean, I'm, I've never yeah. been an addict and I've never done drugs. So mm -hmm. if, if you were working with me, I wouldn't necessarily be somebody you could talk to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you have, yeah. you have a lot of, you, you all have reality amongst yourselves. And I think that that creates, it creates such a great synergy, you know, for a company. I think that's, I think that's great. So, Thank you. So how's your company going? You changed the name, right? Yeah, I did. Originally, it was called Cons and Kernels. I, li I like that name. <laughs> I know. And I like it, too, because it was like a collective decision among the inmates. Like, I would kind of get everyone involved in, in this, this popcorn business, right? And so I was like, what should I call it? So I put out a survey. But as, um, as I got out and we started to going into different channels like e-commerce or, or schools or, or retail, I realized that Cons and Kernels kind of alienated us and, and where we could go. And so I was like, you know what, comeback snacks, like we've made a comeback. Maybe we started out as cons and kernels, but the best way to eradicate stigma is through proof. And it's the proof of the comeback. Like after almost two years in business, I can now say that, yes, you can hire from people. You can hire people that have a record and no, they won't steal from you. Yes, they do want to show up for work. Yes, they can do math. They can calculate like they can, you know, they have drive, right? It's just yep. sometimes... And ignorance is not bliss. And if we want to actually have a better society, right? So it's actually very cool because, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about the stigma of addiction, but you're also helping to handle the stigma of having been in prison. You know, there's, there's mm -hmm. such a stigma attached to it. And the things that you said, like, oh, this person's going to steal from me. This person's going to be dishonest. You know, there's, 
you know, there's like a moral code and the idea is, oh, because this person was in prison, they no longer have it. And that's not necessarily true. In fact, I think yeah. it probably in most cases, it's, it is it is not true. They do have a moral code. Yeah. And addiction is a form of a prison, right? So I think like that's that, that was a prison I was in before. And that's why when I went to this physical prison, I felt like I was freer than I ever was. Right. Right. So. Right. Well, that's awesome. So your business, <laughs> your business has been going for two years. Um, yeah. If if someone wanted to reach out, I don't know, maybe looking for a job or maybe looking for, do you go around and do you talk about what you're doing? Do you do public speaking yeah. about it? Yeah. And I also work with em employers to help them modify their HR policies. That's um, awesome. We had a, we yeah. had a woman on the podcast before Shelly Winter, and she does the same thing because oh, when awesome. she was trying to get hired by a major software company, she ran into a lot of trouble and eventually worked her way through and she was able to get hired. But now she goes around and talks to employers about, you know, like the value of hiring people who have a lot of skill. They just, they made a bad choice. They took a detour at one point. So if people wanted to reach you to find, to get you to come and speak or just talk to you, how do they do that? Um, they can find me online, like on social media. My personal handle is on Instagram is ms.obrien uh, or at Comeback Snacks. And then you can, if you want to send an email, you can go to our website, comebacksnacks.com. Uh, yeah, we're really, really friendly, uh, very responsive. So, or, or on LinkedIn, Emily O'Brien. So anything. Awesome. Emily, if you had <laughs> just one message to give to the people who listen, whether they are, um, whether they are, uh, you know, addicts or families of addicts, what would, what would that message be? Never stop loving, never stop loving yourself and never stop loving the person that's going through a challenging time. Cause what kept me going forward was, was the unconditional love that I really had. And yes, we went through a lot of painful times together, but because that love was still there, we, we made it out together and now we're stronger than ever. So great message. Nothing stronger than love. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and telling your story. I think it's a great story. And I know that there are people who are listening who, you know, may end up in your position and may end up in prison. And, you know, you got two choices. You can either have it be horrible or you can figure out how to turn it around and make it worthwhile. And you definitely did that. And, and now you're helping other people and that's huge. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Emily O'Brien, popcorn magnate. What are we going to talk about next week? Well, I'm really excited to talk about my crazy journey from being a great athlete to getting involved in alcohol and drugs to finding myself in prison um, to becoming a social entrepreneur and helping create op opportunities for those who have been incarcerated, those who have struggled with addiction in the past to help extinguish the stigma with addiction. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Emily O'Brien. I think that it is an, a message about positivity. Um, I think that so often when someone becomes an addict, and if you are a loved one of an addict, this is something you might want to understand. Often, most often, I think when people become addicts, they really have lost their self-respect in some way or another. And Emily managed to get that back in spite of the fact that she was in prison she turned it into a positive experience and she also had the love of a family to keep her going and 
the love of the person who's addicted is something that you never want to lose. I'm not saying you want to enable them and that's obviously not a good idea, but you know, I think with love and positivity that anybody can gain their self-respect back and they can then move on. If, if she can go to prison and come out and be a successful entrepreneur, anybody listening can do that. Y'all can do that. We are a week out from Christmas. It is right before the holidays. If you or a loved one has an addiction problem, please, please, please reach out now. The holidays are not a pleasant time for someone who's addicted. If anything, I think it makes the guilt of addiction worse. And you may think if you're the loved one that it would just be nice to have the person around for the holidays. It's not going to be good. Trust me on that. Get them help. Get them help right now, today. Don't wait. And we will talk to you again. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.